Over the past few years, many cases have come before the court involving that delicate balance between the rights of society and the rights of defendants accused of crimes against society. And honest and dedicated constitutional lawyers have disagreed as to where and how to maintain that balance. As a judicial conservative, I believe some court decisions have gone too far in the past in weakening the peace forces as against the criminal forces in our society. In maintaining, as it must be maintained, the delicate balance between the rights of society and defendants accused of crimes, I believe the peace forces must not be denied the legal tools they need to protect the innocent from criminal elements. And I believe we can strengthen the hand of the peace forces without compromising our precious principle that the rights of individuals accused of crimes must always be protected. That was President Nixon on October 21st, 1971, upon nominating Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist as Supreme Court of the United States. With the recent passing of Associate Justice Antonin Scalia and the hotly contested debate over the future of the Supreme Court, we look at President Nixon's judicial philosophy and his actions to shape the nation's highest court. Nixon appointed four justices, including the influential William Rehnquist, who served for more than 30 years on the bench. Here with us to discuss this is Kevin McMahon, the John Meyer and Charles A. Dana Research Professor of Political Science at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. His books include Reconsidering Race, and his most recent, Nixon's Court, His Challenge Judicial Liberalism and His Political Consequences. For this book, he was awarded the Erwin Griswold Book Prize by the Supreme Court Historical Society uh, last April, where he was able to lecture before the Supreme Court and be, and be introduced by the late Justice Scalia. Let me, let me first ask you about that, uh, Kevin. Uh, what was it like to be introduced by uh, Justice Scalia, and what were your impressions of the man? You know, he was very nice. He's, you know, as many people say, he's funny, charming. You know, so he was he was every bit of that. And when when I met with him in his office beforehand, and uh, in terms of his introduction, it was similar. Um, so it was it was a bit intimidating, obviously, to lecture in the the Supreme Court, the courtroom of the Supreme Court. But um, you know, it was it was a a very enjoyable experience. And why did you why did you decide to write Nixon's Court? Well, you know, there was sort of a standard story about about Richard Nixon and his impact on the Supreme Court. And the standard story uh, is best told by the by the title of a book, which which um, said uh, the counter revolution that wasn't right. So the story was that that Nixon had attempted to transform the court. You know, in his, with his vision, with his constitutional vision in mind, uh, in a conservative direction, and that he had failed. Um, that the the Burger Court had produced, you know, significant liberal decisions like Roe versus Wade, probably most famously. So I I thought there was some problems to that, you know, conventional wisdom, and you know, in 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 exploring Nixon's administration and. His approach to the court, I was I was trying to figure out if that if that conventional wisdom was correct or or if it wasn't. And let's go back to uh, 1968 and the Warren Court, um, what Nixon 
um, ultimately was looking at when he was running for president in 1968. What was the composition of the court before Richard Nixon came into office? In terms of... In terms of in ideology, terms of, in terms of... Uh, yeah, the court was probably the most liberal court in the history, certainly in recent history. I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to compare, you know, 20th century courts to 19th century courts, but it certainly was a court that was defined by its liberalism, uh, was obviously well known for its advocacy in promoting a civil rights agenda, uh, in redefining rights of the accused with cases like the Miranda cases, the Miranda decision. Uh, it was beginning the, the idea of busing and using busing to desegregate the schools. So there were a whole host of issues that brought the court to really the center of attention during the 1968 campaign. And were the American people generally accepting of these court decisions? Not really, no. Um, poll after poll suggests that um, courts were considered, both the Supreme Court specifically and courts in general, were considered to be far too lenient dealing with issues of criminality, uh, that Americans were largely looking for more conservative justices uh, than liberal justices, and Obviously, both Richard Nixon and George Wallace were able to take advantage of that um, skepticism towards the liberalism of the court. Would it, would it be fair to say that the Warren Court profoundly affected the culture of the country during this period of time? Or were these, sure. were these foundations already in place before the court even made these decisions? Well, I would argue that what the court was doing was in areas where the Congress or the president might have been limited, uh, the court was expressing sort of the, the dominant liberal philosophy that was part of the Democratic Party at the time, right? So, and this is from a string of issues, you know, from race to, you know, law and order to freedom of speech. Uh, to rights of privacy with the Griswold case, um, that, that, you know, issues tend to be legislative issues, um, and some ultimately are judicial issues. Many are ultimately judicial issues. So the court was a reflection of what had been a dominant Democratic Party, beginning with FDR, going up to the end of the Johnson administration, and, and as you know, the only the only Republican during that time is Eisenhower. In a, when Nixon was in his wilderness years, um, shortly before he started to really gear up for his um, first campaign in 68, he, he wrote a piece in Reader's Digest um, entitled, What Happened to America? And this is 1967. He wrote, our judges have gone far too far in weakening the peace forces against the criminal forces. Uh, what, what did he mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, and that's a line that he uses, a version of that line he uses throughout the campaign and, and speech after speech. What I think the the general feeling was, was that when you had decisions that made it more difficult to convict criminals, you were, 
you were, in a sense, handcuffing the police, right? That they weren't able to, to do their jobs as effectively as they had in the past. And significantly, at this very time, you had a dramatic rise in crime. Uh, and you also had other types of lawlessness, like rioting in the streets or rioting on college campuses. So Americans saw these images, uh, and and Nixon was trying to link the decisions of the Supreme Court to what was going on, you know, in the streets of the United States. So that's what he's trying to get at, right? If the if the police forces were able uh, to to do their jobs as they have always done, we might not have these same types of problems. But the court has forced them to change, and that change has um, produced these consequences. And this would affect, um, this would allow him to build an even greater coalition in 1968. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, in, in 68, the real issue is the law and order issue, right? And he's trying to, you know, he has a, a tough road to to forge because, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, the Democrats had been dominant um, for since 19, the 1932 election. Nixon is trying to attract Southerners, but off, there's also the third-party candidate George Wallace, right? So, so he has to understand that, uh, and he's also trying to to attract uh, what would later be called. Reagan Democrats. I actually suggest that the the better term the better term is Nixon Democrats because Nixon is able to attract these these voters before Reagan does. And these voters are typically, you know, culturally conservative, traditional Democrats um, who traditionally vote on economic issues. But these, the way 1968 was, um, and really the 60s, was disrupting traditional life, um, they they began to question, certainly at the presidential level, whether the Democratic Party was serving their best interests. So Nixon was trying to use this law and order issue uh, to attract those votes and to, to, to build the Republican Party, which had, for, for much of his political life, had been a minority party, to build a, a majority coalition. You know, we talked about Justice Scalia earlier. Um, we see something almost identical in 1968 as we do now um, with, with Justice Scalia's passing. Uh, Justice, in 1968, Justice Earl Warren decides to retire, the, the Chief Justice, and then President Johnson nominates one of his associate justices, Abe Fortas, to fill the chief spot, and federal court judge Homer Thornberry for Fortas' spot. Um, how did the GOP respond to Johnson's action? It, it's similar uh, to what's going on today, as, as you suggest. <clears throat> it happens a little later in the cycle. So, as, as you know, in early June 1968, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated after winning the California primary. Um, Warren, who, like Nixon, is from California. Warren is also a Republican appointed by Eisenhower, but he's he's a Republican of a more liberal, uh, a more liberal leaning than Nixon, and they and they they dislike each other, right? So Warren sees uh, the death of Kennedy 
as producing a, li- a greater likelihood that Nixon will win the presidency. So he tries to, this political maneuver where he's going to resign his seat and therefore not allow uh, Richard Nixon to, to appoint his replacement. Republicans and Southerners, uh, first of all, the initial reaction is one um, that the expectation is that Fortas uh, will be confirmed as chief um, and Thornberry will be, you know, confirmed as well. But you have this strategy, really a keen strategy um, on the part of conservatives, both Democrats, Southern Democrats and Republicans, to oppose the nomination. Led, led by Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. Nixon himself doesn't say anything, right? He he says, it's not my in my role to to participate in the Senate debate. There's some suggestions that he's working behind the scene with senators, but there's no there's no clear evidence that he does that. Um, and they hold, unlike today, uh, they do hold hearings, and the fact that Fortas is a Supreme Court justice, a sitting Supreme Court justice, puts him in this uncomfortable situation because it allows folks like Senator Thurman to ask him questions about these um, unpopular, typically dealing with criminal issues, unpopular decisions, and say, you know, why did you decide in this way? And Justice Fortas consistently says, I can't say. Right. I can't say because even if I get rejected for chief, I'm still an associate justice. And it's likely that issues, these issues will come back to the court. So I can't tell you my thinking. And this sort of just allowed the Senate to almost put the court on trial during the, the hearings. And, and it was really a political miscalculation on the part of both Lyndon Johnson and Earl Warren. You wonder why uh, Johnson doesn't do, do the same thing that George W. Bush does in 2005 and just uh, just appoint someone who's never been uh, at the, on the high court um, to the point, a point of chief justice, as he did with John Roberts uh, that year. Uh, but Nixon's choice for chief justice is Warren Berger when he comes into office. And now he has two seats, uh, not two, two vacant seats. Um, Berger's a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Uh, who is Warren Berger, and why did why did Nixon come to this decision? Well, Warren Berger. So just to, to fill in a little of the space, so Fort, Fortis uh, ultimately is filibustered in the Senate, so but he stays on on the court. However, in in his confirmation, uh, you know, the, uh, to be chief some evidence comes out to light that there was some financial improprieties uh, in his past. He's then forced to resign from the court in May of 1969, right? So Nixon makes the appointment of Berger knowing he's going to have two vacancies, as you suggested earlier, right? So Berger is somebody who is seen as very conservative on law and order issues, sort of comes to the attention of Nixon because of the speech he gives, a graduation speech, uh, talking about the need to be uh, stricter on law and order issues. But 
on the on the other side of the coin, he's seen as moderate on civil rights, and this is sort of the right prescription both for the country and for the Senate to confirm him. And he's appointed and he's nominated in mid-May. He's confirmed about a month later. Uh, I think three senators uh, voting against him. So pretty quick confirmation, pretty pretty overwhelming support. For the other vacancy, Nixon was determined to select a Southerner, someone who might not be perceived as um, liberal on civil rights or moderate on civil rights. He nominates Clement, he first nominates Clement Hainsworth, a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, who was subsequently blocked uh, by Democrats in the Senate. Uh, why was Nixon so determined to nominate a Southerner, and why was, why was Hainsworth blocked? He was determined to nominate a Southerner in part because he's thinking about electoral strategy. And he, first of all, there's no, the only sitting Southerner on the, on the court is Hugo Black, who's a leading liberal on the court. So he's not, from a, a conservative Southerner perspective, there's no true representative, representative on, on the court from, from the South. So, and the South had given Nixon significant support in the 1968 Republican nomination. There was an attempt by Ronald Reagan to join in, to become, he, he became a candidate late in the process, and his effort, his appeal was in part, was that he could sort of join conservative forces and take over the nomination from Nixon. However, Southern support held for Nixon in Miami in 1968, and this was sort of a way to, to show that he was not only um, pleased with their support, but that he was, you know, he was uh, um, sympathetic to their concerns about these issues that were really central to Southerners during this time period. Um, so Hainsworth is is an attempt to do that, is an attempt to to appeal to the South. And Nixon tries again with another Southerner. Uh, Judge Harold Carswell. Why is Carswell also subsequently rejected? Well, just to, to finish my thought, sorry, um, on Hainsworth. Hainsworth is rejected um, what's perceived to be ethical questions. In reality, what you see is um, that it's an ideological vote. And what's striking is that it's not as we see today, it's not a straight partisan divide, Republicans versus Democrats. In fact, 40% of Republican senators voted against the Hainsworth nomination. And it was really because they didn't want to be seen as supporting a nominee who, was, uh, who might turn back the court's path regarding civil rights. And that was really the key issue. So when he's rejected, the Nixon folks, <clears throat> the Nixon White House searches for another nominee who could offer the same appeal but didn't have these ethical questions. They find Carswell. This is also, there's two things to, to keep in mind here. One, the pool of Southerners who are Republicans, who are young, who have judicial experience, um, 
it's pretty it's pretty shallow, right? There's not many people to choose from um, because the South had been democratic for so long. So that's one. Second of all, the vetting process that exists today, the extensive review of nominees or potential nominees simply did not exist either. So Carswell runs into problems because he had run for the, uh, a state legislative seat in 1948 where he gives this white supremacy speech. Um, and even within the Nixon White House, there's questions about his qualifications. Is he really the right person to sit on the Supreme Court? Um, so again, that runs into problems. Uh, this time, 32% of Republicans vote against him. And even Nixon himself, after he leaves the presidency, admits that Carswell, as he puts it, was a bad egg. But there's there's somewhat of a silver, you write that there's somewhat of a silver lining to the Senate's rejection of Southerners. Um, on April 9th, 1970, Nixon goes to the airwaves and makes a speech and addresses the issue. Uh, what, what did he say and, and what was the result, uh, what was the ultimate outcome of the Senate's rejection of these candidates? So this is where he says basically, um, and this really appeals to Southerners or uh, and to a certain extent, I've come to the conclusion that I can appoint somebody from the South, right? That this person will be, no matter who I appoint, will be rejected because of the Southerness. Um, so this is an appeal because, you know, I tried to get somebody for you. He's saying to Southerners, I, I tried to put somebody, I tried twice. Uh, the Senate is obviously not going to allow it. So I'm not going to forget about it. I'll try again in the future, but right now I need to appoint somebody else. And he appoints Warren Burgers as the, the nickname, uh, his Minnesota twin, right? Harry Blackman, very similar to Berger, considered conservative on law and order issues, but moderate on civil rights. And just like Berger, it's a relatively quick and easy confirmation. Nixon, there's two more vacancies in 1971 when Justice John Harlan and Justice Hugo Black, who you mentioned earlier, stepped down. Um, Nixon, uh, he approaches the Southern issue again, might want to appoint another Southerner. He's also thinking about a woman um, or possibly um, a Catholic. Could you just kind of go into what Nixon's thinking was on the next um, set of uh, nominees? Yeah, so he, <clears throat> as you suggest, he really, he's certainly a Southerner is first on his list. He's definitely going to use one of these two vacancies to appoint a Southerner. Then the real question, and, and, and what's interesting about these vacancies is during the time of the first vacancies, the recording system that had been installed in the White House uh, hadn't been installed yet. But by 19, the fall of 1971, it was installed. So you can listen to these conversations between Nixon and his key advisors, most importantly, Attorney General Mitchell. And they consider really three possibilities for the second seat. One, another Southerner to really pack political punch in the South. Uh, second, a woman. And third, a Catholic. Um, there had been a Catholic, there was a Catholic on the court. 
um, Justice Brennan, but Brennan was a liberal of the first order, right? So, so how how to appeal to these Reagan Democrats, many of whom were Catholics? Uh, maybe you, you appoint, you know, you appoint a Catholic. Um, someone, in all honesty, that Reagan would do with the appointment of Justice Scalia um, in 1986. So he considers these options. He really comes to the conclusion that he's going to appoint a Southerner and he's going to appoint a woman. Uh, and, he, and he has their names, uh, Herschel Friday and Mildred Lilly of California. Friday's from Arkansas. So he, he releases six names as opposed to two as sort of a trial balloon. And of, of the six names, uh, Lily and Friday are included. The response to that is quite negative. Um, not only from, from uh, liberals, as you might expect, but also from some Republican allies. Uh, that we can do better in a sense. And Nixon takes this response and he it really sort of focuses his his effort. He sort of decides that the political significance of a fe- female appointee is not as important as he once thought. So and that Friday is not uh serious enough uh in terms of his law background, to be uh, a, a serious consideration for the Supreme Court, so he scraps those six, all six of them, and he he then finds Lewis Powell, who's a Southerner from Virginia, and then, as you mentioned at the very beginning of the program, w- William Rehnquist, who's in the Nixon Justice Department, and Rehnquist. Sorry. I was going to ask, and Powell, you know, Powell is a, he's a Southerner, he's a Virginia lawyer. Um, right. Why is, why is he, you know, he he's passes pretty easily. Why is he, why is he so acceptable to the Senate when other Southerners weren't? Well, I think he's more of a traditional, um, he had been a Democrat, uh, or he was a Democrat, he had been president of the ABA, so, so he was he didn't pose the same type of threat um as Hainsworth and Carswell uh posed when they were appointed. He was he was in all honesty, he was simply considered more moderate than they were, more will more likely to be uh to conti- to continue the course on civil rights as opposed to disrupting it. And with with Rehnquist, he's somebody who doesn't fit any of the demographics. How did how did what was Rehnquist's background, and how did he come to become the second nominee? His background is in is in the Justice Department, right? He's he's actually part of the part of the team that vets that had vetted candidates. Um, he is considered a, a brilliant legal mind, first in his class at Stanford, or certainly near the top of his class at Stanford. Uh, then from then uh, practice in Arizona, um, and and as you suggest, offers no political payoff. Right, as uh, he once joked um, that he wouldn't con- he wouldn't be considered because um, he wasn't a Southerner, he wasn't a woman, and he wasn't mediocre. <laughs> so he he wouldn't be a serious consideration, but but as Nixon searched 
for the his final choice, what became his final choice. He considered two people. Howard Baker, who was a southern Tennessee, sorry, senator from Tennessee, and this was the two southern strategy, so Paul and Baker. And but Baker sort of wasn't sure if he wanted to be appointed to the court, and or he would would he want to stay in the Senate. And ultimately, Baker says that he is interested in being appointed. But by this point, it's too late. Nixon has become convinced that it's better to to appoint somebody who has an outstanding record, who's considered, you know, a leading legal mind. It's better to appoint somebody like Rehnquist without the political impact than it is to appoint Howard Baker. So he 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 goes with Rehnquist. Powell has an easy confirmation. Uh, a lot of attack is focused on Rehnquist, but ultimately he survives, right? And this is part of the argument of the book, is that that um, that in attacking Nixon in this fall '71, uh, you know, this list of six, and with his critics attacking him, he ultimately gets the victory because he appoints somebody. William Rehnquist, who becomes a leading voice of conservatism on the court uh, and really becomes a thorn in the side of liberals for, you know, three plus decades. You mention several instances in Chapter 8 in, in which the court really, Nixon's court really starts to take shape um, and how the Nixon administration, um, their actions, the Justice Department's actions um, in the court. Um, in, in uh, over the course of uh, of the administration, um, you say that they're rather restrained in these matters. Just to name a few issues: pornography, uh, profanity, death penalty, welfare rights. Uh, one particular area the administration got involved uh, was the Pentagon Papers. But ultimately, why was why was the administration so restrained in matters of the court? Well, you know. This is this also goes to the heart of the argument. Um, if you're talking about a counter a counter revolution that that wasn't part of that argument is that that the Burger Court not only um, rules on significant liberal decisions like Roe v. Wade, but in a host of other areas as well. So therefore, if the Burger Court doesn't advance the current conservative agenda, there must be a problem there. And what I'm arguing is that if you look at the Nixon administration's approach to the court, it's not, it's not attempt, there's not an attempt to have a wholesale conservative counter-revolution. That's not what they're trying to do. They're, they're really trying to focus on just the select, really two main issues that they hoped to move the court on. And those two issues deal with uh, school desegregation and then and, and along those lines, busing, and then issues dealing with law and order. So if you're really pursuing a fair evaluation of the Nixon effort to transform the court, you have to you can't just assume that it was active on all these areas, right? So it shows, you know, it made a, a calculation of what issues were the most significant uh, from its standpoint, 
and where it could be most effective, both doctrinally and in terms of uh, the political payoff of that shift and its focus there. On these host of other issues where a a more thorough um, effort to transform the court might have continued, the Nixon administration really takes a pass, right? On case and after case, it simply refuses to issue a brief, even though, uh, like the Reagan administration in the case of abortion, never let an opportunity to pass where it didn't issue a brief. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, you know, for a fair evaluation, you have to take, um, you have to understand what the administration was trying to do, not simply assume it was conservative and therefore evaluate it on that basis. But, you know, you say that, but especially in the matter of courting people like Catholics, um, encounter the sort of permissive culture that was left over by the Warren court. Why, why didn't, um, even if it was politically expedient, why not file an amicus brief for Roe versus Wade? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. I think there's, there's two things going on there. One, um, the parties were not aligned as they are today, where you had total, you know, I shouldn't say total, but you had basically a pro-life party today, you, you know, the Republican Party, and basically a pro-choice party, the Democratic Party, right? That there was much more of a, of a mixture. There were many more pro-life Democrats and pro-choice Republicans, particularly in places like the Northeast. So the, the issue itself, in fact, you know, Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, signed uh, a liberalization laws um, in, the state of, in the state of California. Nelson Rockefeller, Republican in New York, signed liberalization laws, you know, for New York. So the issue itself was, was in a sense, a new issue. Right, and it was unclear um, to certainly some in the next administration uh, whether or not that was the right uh, path to pursue. That Roe versus Wade did not uh, had not generated the type of significance uh, that it eventually would in 1973. It took really until the 1980s, until uh, the Reagan administration, for Roe to sort of uh, achieve the significance that that it held in 1980 and it continues to hold today. And on to my final question, uh, what would you say is the greatest legacy of uh, Nixon's court, um, specifically the transformation from the Warren court, the Warren-led court to the Burger court, and even beyond that through the, the Rehnquist court and the now Roberts court? Well, I guess from Nixon's perspective, there's really two things, right? On those issues that he focuses on, the court ultimately comes around to his side, right? So going back to this counter-revolution that wasn't, I argue that's wrong, right? On the issues that he sought to transform the court on, again, dealing with law and order and dealing with um, school desegregation, he succeeds. Uh, the court ultimately, after it had, it had initially struck down, for example, the death penalty, it declares the death penalty is constitutional in 1976. After it had suggested that it was uh, supportive of busing, um, 
in the Milliken case of 1974, it says busing across city lines is not acceptable, right, which really limits it in many parts of the country. So on those issues, doctrinal, doctrinal in terms of doctrine, um, Nixon is successful. And then politically, in the 1972 election, going back, not only does Nixon win in the South, obviously in 72 he wins everywhere except for Massachusetts, but he wins in the South and he he builds the base in the Northeast for what would become Reagan Democrats. So he really sets the path for what becomes, especially at the presidential level, a dominant Republican coalition. So if you think about it, Republicans had not been all that successful pre-68. And even in 68, Nixon wins a, you know, a, a very close race. But after that, 72, you have a 49-state landslide election. 76, even with Watergate, Jimmy Carter barely wins the presidency. 80, landslide for Reagan. 84, another 49-state landslide for Reagan. 88, a comfortable victory for George H.W. Bush. So that really sets the stage for what becomes a more conservative court when Reagan appoints his justices and George H.W. Bush appoints his, and you have this move to the right uh, on a whole host of other issues. And Nixon finally gets his Italian Catholic and Antonin Scalia. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Kevin, so much for and, your and, time. And, and by that point, just to, sorry, just to finish up, by that point, the pool of candidates is much deeper. So you can get not only a politically significant appointee, uh, the first Italian-American, like Antonin Scalia, but somebody who is considered a first-rate legal mind. Thank you, Kevin, so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Avroidas, signing off.